1: Genius. Get this. Welcome.
2: Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. Back. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions.
3: research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientists.
4: Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Julia Ravi, and in this week's program, we take a look at the warning signs of bowel cancer. Does a so-called runner's high exist? And if so, why does it happen? And how reducing on-pitch violence in sporting events has led to an increase in mind games to outface opponents. And after that, it is the start of our Alternative Energy Month and we're kicking off with Solar. Over the past week, over 100 cases of monkeypox have been reported worldwide, including 20 cases so far picked up in the UK. This is a virus endemic to parts of Central and Western Africa. It's naturally carried by rodents like mice, but can occasionally jump the species barrier and infect humans and monkeys. Cases periodically crop up here when people travelling to the UK bring the infection with them. The incubation period is a week or two and most people have a mild illness that lasts about a week, which is characterised by a fever, muscle aches and blistering rash. Although a small percentage of cases, the infection can be lethal for. People are infectious while they are symptomatic and the disease spreads through close contact with cases. One of the UK patients had a travel history to Africa, but the remaining cases do not, suggesting that transmission is occurring in the community. One notable observation is that most of the documented cases in Western countries are occurring amongst men who have sex with men, suggesting that these people may be at particular risk of catching the infection and need to be on the lookout. Here to bring us up to speed with the measures that are being taken to investigate and halt the outbreak is public health expert Linda Bald. So Linda, what do we know about the cases we're seeing here in the UK and how are they linked to one another? Well, Julia, as you were saying,
5: normally these cases are travel linked, but we picked up a case on the 7th of May, or my colleagues did uh, this month, um, and that was an individual who had a recent travel history to Nigeria. But Then what happened was that on the 14th of May, two further cases with no known links to the case that was picked up on the 7th of May were reported, and those two cases were individuals from the same household. And after that, we've seen several more, and it's increased since then, as you said,
4: up till 20 Yeah, so how is this being investigated? Is it similar to the sort of ways we look for COVID 19 in the population?
5: Yeah, there's two main methods that we use in public health. The first one is we need to investigate. So that's lab-based studies once we identified people who have a virus. And secondly, through then trying to trace their contacts, which everybody's now familiar with, the phenomenon of contact tracing. We all know about that from COVID. But essentially, the investigations are happening um, when you are able to take samples from those who have the infection. That's through biochemistry, uh, hematology, and also microbiology. And they'll also be doing, I think, as we've already seen from Portugal, genetic sequencing to see is this the same as it was from the virus we've normally picked up from Africa, uh, Central and West Africa, or is it different? And the Portuguese have already released some data on that suggesting it doesn't look like the virus has changed. So that's the lab work. The second one is contact tracing. And in fact, the UK Health Security Agency has already published their standard protocol. And they've got people who go from highest risk, so that might be very close bodily contact or the same household and um, to those who are at less risk. So less risk might be people who, for example, have been in the same place as someone who's infected. And what is the management plan for this type of virus? So, monkeypox infection is usually a self limiting illness, and most people recover within several weeks. So, that's a really important point to emphasize. As you were saying, severe illness can occur. So, what essentially we're, happen- we're doing at the moment, or my colleagues are, is supporting the people who do have symptoms. That might begin with a fever, a headache, muscle aches, and then, as people know now, as seen reported in the media, what normally happens is you then have a rash and then these pustules uh, emerge. What we're doing in terms of treatment is mainly supportive. So people can be treated for the symptoms. And then there's another really important arm of this, and that's vaccination. So we have a vaccine that is originally created for smallpox, and it can be used both pre- and post-exposure. So even if people already are infected, they may actually be offered this vaccine. And more importantly, the contacts, we're doing something called ring vaccination, my colleagues are, which means that you give the vaccine Uh, To the people who are close contacts, and that may prevent them from developing certainly severe symptoms. And then finally, of course, tried and tested public health. um, Again, in settings or groups where we might have people who are at risk, hand hygiene is really important because this is not the same as COVID. It's not an airborne virus, it's a virus that transfers through close contact or through droplets.
4: And as you mentioned, though, this has been in the news a lot. And I think at the minute, we're all very sensitive to hearing this is a new virus and it's potentially in the community. Is this situation going to escalate or have we caught it in time?
5: Well, the whole international community working on this is very alert. I think we really need to recognise that because it's normally symptomatic transmission, we can be reassured. So we will pick up the cases. And in fact, the populations, as you were discussing, men aged 20 to 50 um, who are coming forward, they're a group who are good at picking up if they have a rash or symptoms and and seeking support. So we don't know how many cases we'll find. Just to give you one example, from contact tracing that's happened, you know, 50 contacts, only one of them might have picked up the virus. So we're really looking at something that is A, more easily identifiable than the asymptomatic transmission
4: from COVID and B, that we, we know how to manage it and we have an effective vaccine. Thanks there to Edinburgh University's Linda Ball for giving us an update on the emerging and ongoing monkeypox situation. Over the last couple of weeks, Dame Deborah James has raised over £6 million for cancer charities. She launched the fundraiser after announcing publicly that she was receiving palliative care because her own bowel cancer was no longer responding to treatment. She's undoubtedly also very much shone a spotlight on a disease that is unfortunately very common but discussed too little. Luckily, we do have a screening programme across the UK that has been a big success story. Chris Smith went to see consultant gastroenterologist Sibu Varghese, who's part of that initiative, to find out a bit more about bowel cancer, including the warning signs you should be aware of.
6: The main symptoms to look out for are blood in the poo, the other thing is a change in your bowel habits, you, you can't explain otherwise, so if your stools are, or your bowels are more frequent, more loose, um, and also things like tummy pain, abdominal pain, discomfort and also unexplained weight loss, these are the key symptoms to look out for. And who's at risk? We don't know the exact cause of um, what causes bowel cancer, but uh, there are certain risks to look out for. So one is age, so uh, 9 out of 10 people with bowel cancer are over the age of 60. There are other risk factors like your diet, being overweight, lack of exercise, smoking, and also if there's a strong family history of bowel cancer as well. And as cancers go,
3: is this one becoming more common, becoming less common? Are there certain sectors of society among whom it's a particular problem?
6: It is definitely one of the most common causes of cancer in the UK um, I would think is in, in the third or fourth place and it can be a deadly cancer if diagnosed quite late the incidence is increasing and that's what we that's the feel we're getting at the moment yes.
3: Tell us about the screening program though because that has been going for what 15 years or so. Yes, we've had a
6: screening program started in 2006. In England, it is um, available for people over the age of 60, so between 60 and 74. um, And we're looking at gradually lowering this age group to the 50s as well. You get sent a stool kit, which is quite a simple kit to do. It's a plastic tube that you test your uh, poo for any traces of blood. And if that's the case, you're invited to uh, discuss about having a colonoscopy to look for any polyps or sometimes cancer as well.
3: That's the next step, is it? So you'd you'd call someone back and then physically
6: take a look inside to see if you can pinpoint the cause of that bleeding? The first thing would be to have an appointment with one of our specialist screening practitioners where we discuss their health in general and discuss whether a colonoscopy would be appropriate. And what's the intervention
3: after that? If you do find someone's got bowel cancer, what happens next?
6: Uh, you know It's unfortunate, but what we tend to do is encourage them that this is something we're picking up early. We then refer them on to the specialist team, which involves a surgeons and a cancer specialists with regards to treating this and taking care of this. And because of
3: earlier pickup, because of things like screening, is that translating into a, a drop in the mortality from bowel cancer? So we're diagnosing people with it, but we're treating them and potentially curing them more. Is that actually happening? Is it bearing fruit
6: It's very difficult to interpret this data and I think we're definitely making a difference because I do a lot of the colonoscopies and I can see that we're detecting things early but also there's an increase in the incidence of cancers as well. So it is difficult to sort of, you know, decipher this data more but definitely we are making a plateau in terms of the incidence of cancer and obviously people are surviving longer if they're treated early so it is definitely making a big difference. The age at which this is kicking in though, I know you've said... The
3: aim is to to lower that a bit. Nevertheless, Deborah James, who we've heard a lot about in the last couple of weeks, she would have been totally outside the scope of that screening window, wouldn't she?
6: Yes, yes. Um, The number of people who get cancer very early, like her, you know, in her 30s, it's very small, but... you know, understand that's an important group. And I think the only thing I can say with that, the younger age group is obviously to look out for symptoms, as I mentioned. And number two, if you've got a family history of bowel cancer, i.e. a close relative, so someone who is your father, mother, brother or sister who has had bowel cancer under the age of 50, it would be important to talk to your GP about that because there would be a case of doing what's called surveillance or screening for bowel cancer with a colonoscopy much earlier on in this group of people.
3: And overall prognosis: If someone
6: is diagnosed with a bowel cancer, what's the likely outcome? It all depends on how far advanced it is, or what stage it is. If it's if it is in an early stage, which is what we hope for, then it can, and it's limited to the bowel. Essentially, an operation or surgery to remove that bit of the bowel will cure the person of that condition. But if it is quite advanced, I mean, we still have a lot of good treatment. But if it is sort of ve- very advanced, then unfortunately sometimes you know people don't survive. But obviously, uh, the earlier you know about it, the better.
4: Sibu Varghese. Over 100 years ago, Albert Einstein predicted the existence of black holes, regions of the universe so dense, with gravity so strong, that nothing, not even light, can escape. Whilst we've been pretty sure that black holes exist for a long time, it's actually only fairly recently that we've been able to see them. You might remember back in 2019 when an international collaboration of scientists released the first ever image of a black hole. It was captured with a device called the Event Horizon Telescope. This first black hole was 55 million light years away and huge, Two factors that made the job a little bit easier, but now the same team are back and they've pushed the envelope to show us what our own galaxy's black hole looks like. Physicist Ben McAllister has the story.
7: Picture a vast spinning galaxy. Our home, the Milky Way. Billions of stars spread across thousands of light years of space, all rotating around a central point. At that central point, we now know, lies an extremely large, extremely dense object. A supermassive black hole. And we know this because we've actually seen it. Or rather, we can't actually see the black hole itself. It's completely dark because no light can escape. But we can see its shadow, a dark region surrounded by a bright ring of glowing gas just far enough away, travelling just fast enough to avoid being pulled in but I'm getting ahead of myself. The Event Horizon Telescope collaboration, made up of hundreds of astronomers from all over the world, has recently revealed the first ever direct image of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. It's called Sagittarius A-star, and it's about 4 million times the mass of the Sun. This is an astonishing feat, following up their similar work a few years ago, imaging a much larger black hole in a neighbouring galaxy. So, How do you take a photo of something completely dark and 27,000 light-years away? You need an exceptional telescope, or, in the case of Event Horizon, eight exceptional telescopes distributed across the planet and all working together, meshing their data. Essentially, Event Horizon creates a virtual telescope the size of the Earth. The data used to make this new image were actually collected back in 2017, around the same time as the data for the last black hole image – but it's taken longer to process. Since our own black hole is about a thousand times smaller than the last one, the fast-moving gas which orbits it does so in a much shorter time frame, so the image is changing a lot more rapidly, making the data processing more difficult. Nevertheless, the researchers were stunned with how well the image agreed with Einstein's predictions, made about 100 years ago, and said that these observations added to a deeper understanding of how these truly amazing, extreme cosmic objects behave. It's also incredible to think that the light the telescopes were imaging from the gas around Sagittarius A-star has been traveling for 27,000 years across the galaxy to reach our network of radio dishes distributed across the planet, and that astronomers can combine all that data to form a handful of beautiful, albeit slightly blurry, images. The Event Horizon team isn't stopping there, though. They're already working on new data processing techniques to improve the pictures, as well as upgrades to take sharper images and maybe even real-time movies. So, whilst we haven't replicated Christopher Nolan's Interstellar just yet, we might not be far off seeing a real-life black hole on the big screen.
4: Ben McAllister reporting on the Event Horizon Telescope's spectacular feat of imaging the black hole Sagittarius A at the centre of our galaxy. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientist's In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. You're on The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravy, and still to come, basketballers resorting to psychological tactics to put off their opponents. And solar energy kind of hold the key to solving the current energy crisis. Now, as the days grow longer and the weather gets warmer, you may notice more people out on the roads enjoying a jog. If you've ever pounded the pavement, you may have experienced runner's high, an almost euphoric state which precedes a period of pacing. Now researchers at NYU have given us a better idea of what is behind this and the other beneficial impacts of exercise. I covered this story and I thought it would be interesting to explain it whilst I was running. So let's see how I fared. I'm out on a jog today and... I'm gonna be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of running when I'm doing it, but afterwards I always feel amazing. And this is potentially from alterations to chemicals in my brain. Margaret Rice from NYU studies this process, and those benefits go
8: beyond just feeling good. Among the beneficial effects are improved motor activity. This is known in Parkinson's patients who exercise. Exercise also improves symptoms of depression, of anxiety.
4: But the exact changes which occur are still under investigation. So Margaret and her team wanted to explore exercise's impact on the brain. We
8: put mice on running wheels and compared them to mice that were housed with a running wheel, but that was locked. And then we allowed these two groups of mice access to the wheel for 30 days. We examined their brains for dopamine, which is an important neurotransmitter in motor and reward pathways. And we looked at brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which promotes growth of neurons survival of neurons and we found that there was no change in dopamine levels but that brain derived neurotrophic factor did go up in motor regions of the striatum
4: the striatum is a brain region buried deep in the brain sort of on the level of the ears and eyes where they cross over and it's important in moving and also in detecting reward Running also has a longer term impact
8: on activity in this region. The change in BDNF was not particularly prolonged, but what we found was that dopamine release in brain slices from these mice was enhanced, and this wasn't just an enhancement in this motor region, but also in reward regions of the striatum, and those effects persisted for at least seven days, for a week after we stopped the mice from running. And it looks like BDNF and dopamine interact in these events. We did look at mice that have half the levels of BDNF, and we found that in those mice, there was no elevation of BDNF with running, and there was no increase in dopamine release.
4: A disorder caused by the loss of dopamine is Parkinson's disease, when neurons making this chemical die. And in mouse models mimicking this condition, BDNF has been implicated in protecting brain cells, meaning boosting its levels via exercise. Could help protect the dopamine neurons as
8: well as to boost release from the remaining dopamine neurons.
4: So exercise could provide benefits in early stage Parkinson's disease. And in terms of a runner's high, this long-lasting impact of dopamine signaling
8: could contribute. It's already been shown that dopamine release goes up when rodents run anyway, because it's a motor pathway transmitter. And so part of our motor behavior requires dopamine.
4: That's brilliant. Yeah, I went on a run today and I always feel... <laughs> I did. I did. I went on a run today and I always feel much better. Like After I finish, I just feel so much happier and like my mood is boosted and I'm much clearer ahead. Right, and I find that to be enduring. And I, I think that
8: could be some of the long-term effects that we see from dopamine, as, as well as the other beneficial effects on other transmitter systems that I'm sure occur as well.
4: So it looks like exercise gives our brains a boost, both in terms of feeling good by dopamine release, and could even help protect our brain cells. So pick your favorite exercise. Could be running, dancing, walking, Anything you want and get moving. I tell you what's hard, running and speaking about neuroscience at the same time. I was speaking there to Margaret Rice from NYU on her research published this week in the Journal of Neuroscience. And finally this week, in the world of sport, there is something of a blurry distinction between doing everything in your power to win the game fairly and bending the rules to give yourself an advantage. Asaf Lev, a former professional basketball player, is now a sport and exercise anthropologist at the Ono Academic College in Israel. He wanted to see what the consequences of stricter rules against violent physical actions in the NBA, the world's top basketball league, might have on other behaviours. James Titko asked him how he made the journey from athlete to academic.
9: (laughs) As a professional basketball player, I always wanted just to know a little bit more. I was fascinated by the conflicts, physical and aggression uh, as part of the game. But I didn't really have the tools. Today, being an intro sports and exercise anthropologist, I can look at things differently.
2: I think it's really cool that your job exists, trying to get to the bottom of why sport energizes people in the way that it does not because we're just admiring the physical feats of excellence but the passion and emotion derived from the rivalries and the competition because sport can bring out the best and worst in us can't it and that's where we come to your study to think about aggression and your study differentiates between two types of violence physical and symbolic violence can you outline what you mean by those terms
9: Physical violence, it's the most common type of violence. We're talking about elbowing and pushing, and we can see in many sports fields. It's it's kind of like very straightforward type of violence. Symbolic violence, it's more tricky. We're not really perceived symbolic violence as violence, but in the heart in the core of the symbolic violence is the intention to diminish or to belittle your opponent those little things like bodily gestures even gazing him or her differently
2: the study was keeping track of these two types of violence over a 20-year period in nba basketball games was there something you're expecting to see
9: I have noticed for years that the physical violence is still there, but it definitely has decreased over the year. And given the harsh sanctions, many NBA players, they think twice before executing any physical violence. But. I have noticed that the symbolic violence, such as trash talking and some crossovers and slam slam dunks on the face of the opponents or what in general we used to say, the posterizing, it has become such a major weapon, quote unquote. But then I was fascinated after where we conducted the paper, delving into the details, the data itself, we were very surprised to see that physical violence is still here. You can see how there are more symbolic violence hands down.
2: Is there a sense that less dramatic physical violence we're seeing and the rise in symbolic violence at the same time is a sport like basketball just by its nature an activity in which there is drama there is violence and maybe that's part of its appeal
9: all types of violence all of them are part of the game yes and we see some previous studies uh, shows that the audience the crowd they want very like vivid physical contact this is part of the game definitely uh, i totally agree with you james
2: I think everyone in this country who watches football for years will say, oh, the game's gone soft. It's not what it used to be. I want to know how we can find a balance between still encouraging that aggressive side of the game that we all grew up to love with wanting to mitigate the violence which we can sometimes see and which we obviously don't want to encourage
9: We should ask ourselves where we draw the line. And I don't think that I do have a great answer here. Um, I don't. But what I can tell you is that people, again, try or or maybe they're talking about condemning the physical violence. But the symbolic violence, we're more encouraging as in in the crowd and sometimes on, on TV and so on. So symbolic violence is... Um, we don't... We do not perceive symbolic violence as something degrading, as mm-hmm. something insulting. Uh, every every year, we see, we see the consequences. Um, it's not only on court, but you can see how it shifted also on the everyday or in the neighborhood or something. Uh, back in the day, it wasn't a big deal, you know? And, and that was... Basically, it was nothing. But now, these days... We can see that people are going to laugh at you, people are going to insult you. I think there's, um, it's a serious matter and uh, that can cause really psychological harm here.
4: asav speaking with James Titkow.
10: Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravey, and for the remainder of the show this week, I'm joined by James Titko, who spent the past few weeks shining a light on solar energy.
2: That's right, Julia. The sun has well and truly come out this past week, and I guess we can take this as a sign of the optimism in the world of solar power, and it's potential to put a big dent in our net zero objectives. To kick off our series of programmes on renewables, we're going to be looking at solar in a local, national and international context and speak to the people who might be able to tell us whether it can be one of the central pillars in our response to the ongoing energy crisis.
4: Yes, we are. This has been a very interesting one to work on with you, James. So let's get going.
2: We're starting here in Cambridge here, home to one of the largest solar parks in the country, Vine Farm. I paid a visit to the site and was joined by two employees from Bivar, the German company which built and now maintains the park. I wanted to see it in action and learn how photovoltaic or PV solar panels actually work
11: up here, and Dan's just in, and Nice to meet you. I spoke, and you. And I spoke to, um, spoke to Dan, and I carried on. And it's amazing how big this place is. Yeah, no, well, I well... I to pop that on? Hi, Viz. Uh,
12: so I'm Dan Bishop. I'm an area manager covering the Midlands area for Biva.
11: I'm Nicola Crosby. I'm the Solar Operation and Maintenance Coordinator for the Biva Operation Services
2: team. Um, So the sheep, they're just allowed to, to graze in and around the solar panels
12: uh, absolutely so the site's been built with grazing in mind so there's sheep protection built around to stop them damaging any of the infrastructure and having the sheep on site obviously helps maintain right the the ground conditions it stops the grass growing too long to that, that can shade the modules which can affect production if the grass grows too long and dries out in the summer that can be a fire risk so having the sheep on site for us is fantastic so the site itself is spread over roughly 200 acres. There are just shy of 150,000 solar modules. So what you can see here is a very small percentage of the actual site. Mm-hmm. It goes way, way in the distance over there, spread over four fields. And I've I read online sort of conflicting
2: either it, one of the biggest solar farms in the country or the biggest solar farm in the
12: country. I, I believe at the time of, of build in 2015, it was the biggest. Yeah. But by our building solar farms this year, and I believe we've got one in the pipeline that is going to quite dramati- quite dramatically how exactly do
2: these sheets of silicon that we can see as far as the eye sees
12: turn sunlight into yeah. electricity which powers our homes so these modules they take in solar irradiation from the sun, which is exactly the same thing that gives you a tan effectively the the solar radiation then excites electrons inside of those cells, which generates a DC voltage.
2: Direct current.
12: Direct current, exactly. So the solar modules are then daisy-chained together, effectively, in, in what we call series, which increases the voltage, which makes it easier to and more efficient for the inverters to convert into AC, which is alternating current. It makes sure that the frequency and the voltage that it's putting out matches the grid hence it's called a grid tied solar inverter and then from there it converts it to the grid voltage grid frequency and feeds it back to our private substation which then feeds it back to the the dno substation which is district network operator each module putting out roughly 350 watts at peak and in total that will give us just shy of 46 megawatts of power 46 megawatts roughly give or take will power on average 11 and a half thousand homes
2: what goes into maintaining a site like this? What other sort of technology or innovation are you using to keep something like this up and running? I mean, it's, it's so massive, as we've described.
12: Yeah, so on a site like this, obviously due to the, the sheer scale of it, things do go wrong. It's inevitable. So the solar inverters, like any other piece of electrical equipment, like a fridge-freezer in your house, eventually something will, will break. With regards to the, the sheep, the sheep are generally very good. For helping us maintain the site, every now and again they'll find a little cable to have a nibble on. So,
2: (laughs) have you had any casualties? We haven't.
12: Nope. Over 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 two hundred acres, we we've never had a sheep succumb. (laughs) Um, So yeah, but no. As a general rule, the sites are are generally very good. Um, The the inverters are are reliable. The modules, considering the the sheer scale of it, we don't have to replace as many as you'd think. So on this site, we may replace maybe 10 a year modules. When the sun's not shining, what's the sort of variation
2: in output of the station? Um, And is it fairly consistent year on
12: year, or do you have bad years, good years? So naturally, you will have years that are slightly higher than others, depending on the weather. But as long as the sun rises in the morning, they'll be producing something. Depending on the level of cloud cover, that obviously will reduce again it, it works on solar radiation so the more intense the sun the the more efficiently the system will work so in a, in the middle of winter if the sun is out and there is absolutely zero cloud they will still produce the full full amount mm-hmm. with, with the sun slightly lower in the sky but it, it'll be pretty much there obviously as soon as the cloud cover comes over with the sun a bit low yes it, it will drop but it still produces more than you'd expect in the winter which Probably surprising to most
2: people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things people often say about solar is it takes up a lot of land. And this is land that might otherwise be containing lots of wildlife. There's the debate, obviously, around people uh, growing crops, food versus fuel.
11: Yeah, I think operationally as a company, we're very good at um, looking at sustainability. We compensate 100% of all our operational and travel greenhouse emissions, from the site, from construction, we always have a plan in place for wildlife. For, for the Badger
12: Gates. The Badger <laughs> Gates for
11: we wildlife, gates. yeah. So wildlife can access the sites. Obviously, we've already t- touched on where you can use the land for grazing, for grain um, fruit crops. Obviously, this is a big space and the farmers decided to graze here as well, which is really great because it benefits everyone.
2: Farmers presumably leasing out their land to a solar farm is a lot less work for them than growing crops. Is there sort of a, a worry that we're going to... Because obviously the war in Ukraine, people are talking about the food security crisis. And when at the same time having this energy crisis and we're pushing for renewable sources to get to our carbon targets, when is there too much solar <laughs> that could otherwise be used for other purposes?
11: I think farmers have a challenge uh, wherever they are to make sure that they're meeting their own requirements, the country's requirements for food sourcing. And obviously, as you said, we've got a challenge with energy as well. And I think that they can quite well achieve a, a blend of that with their land the solar power is helping them with keeping their farm sustainable from a commercial perspective but also obviously still being able to use it for grazing as well and 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 for growing the the crops that we talked about so i think all in all it's a good mixture obviously you can't just stick a solar farm just anywhere so not all land might be suitable but similarly there are also farmlands that aren't suitable for crops either so that would be a good alternative to to help them uh, help with the energy crisis to to use your land for for renewable
4: energy nicola crosby and dan bishop from Bivor there from the enormous vine farm solar park here in cambridgeshire I have a feeling that the topic of land use will crop up a few more times before we're finished here today.
2: Very good. (laughs) I take Nicola's point that it's great for some of these scenarios where you can use the land for solar and grazing animals. But you can't get away from the fact that we're giving up an increasing amount of the arable farming land here around East Anglia and around the country to generate solar energy instead of grow crops. When you consider all that roof space on our homes and on commercial buildings too where panels could go up, you can see why this is a contentious issue.
4: It's true, which brings me on to our first live guest today, the man who believes it won't be long before the majority of us are getting at least some of our electricity needs from our very own roofs rather than the grid. He's also CEO of the company that just might play a part in speeding up that process. So welcome to the show, Andreas Thorsheim. Andreas, you work for Otovo, who have a presence across Europe, and you're coming to the UK in the coming weeks. Can you tell us a little bit about what you are all about?
1: Yes, uh, Otovo is a company that aims to be the easiest and most affordable way to get solar panels on your roof. Otovo is a web page where you can input your address and get a quote instantly and then you can just buy the solar panels and maybe a battery for your home online just as easy as you buy a, a shirt or a pair of shoes.
4: And do you have a way to help people overcome that initial upfront cost of installing solar panels on their house because that is pretty expensive?
1: Yes, it is. For the typical household, you know, they'll, they'll probably find a, a £5,000 investment daunting. And that's, that's why we came up with a, a product where people can pay a monthly bill and we offer them the, the opportunity to lease the panels. And the way that works is that you don't have to put up the money up front, but, but you'd rather pay a, a monthly bill. And, and then um, in that way, you can save as much as 20% on your electricity bill. A typical electricity bill might be a, a £110 pounds per month. And after you get these solar panels on your roof, you'll pay less than 50 on your electricity bill. You'll have to pay the rental for 40 to 45. And the rest is, is saving. So 20 pounds a month. It works in it immediately. So that's uh, that's been very popular in, in Spain and in Scandinavia, where we've had this product for a couple of years now and excited to launch this in the UK this summer.
4: Yeah, it sounds like the technology is there and the economics are in place for household solar to really kick on. So why... Do such a minority of buildings in this country, in the UK, have solar panels on their roofs?
1: I think it's maybe a, a, mostly a question of people not being aware of how great solar p- power is. We started at Tovo in Norway in 2016, and it's certainly not the easiest place to to make money from solar energy, since we have a long, dark winter and quite inexpensive traditional energy in the grid. But but what has happened to the cost of solar energy since we since we started is just remarkable. We've halved the cost of solar installations in Norway in the last five years alone. We believe we're going to be able to do that in the UK too. And we can now save money for people pretty much anywhere in the world by providing solar panels and maybe batteries for their home.
4: The EU has just released a plan to make it mandatory for all new buildings to have solar panels installed during their construction. Are you surprised it's taken an energy crisis like the one we're experiencing now for this initiative to happen?
1: Yes, I think it's a little late, but we're happy that they're doing it now. But we've seen over the last years, both in the UK and and in Europe, policy support for solar panels really increasing. And in the UK, you don't pay value-added tax for solar installations. And that's a recent piece of policy that just came out in the UK. So policy support is there. And I think it will make solar power much more commonplace in the UK in in years to come.
4: Yeah, it does seem to make a lot of sense, really, if we're putting buildings up and we want to be More energy friendly to have that in the policy. But one of the things that's really cool about solar is how diverse it is. We can have these enormous solar farms powering thousands of homes via the grid, and then a handful of PV panels on a house's roof that provides the energy for a single family out in a remote part of the countryside. What do you see as the future of solar in the coming years and decades?
1: Well, I think over the next generation, we're going to see panels come up on pretty much every single roof. And I think maybe a third of the electricity that we consume in households and in commercial buildings will be produced where the electricity is consumed. And the rest will come from nuclear plants and, and hydropower and wind power produced centrally. But as much as a third of the energy can be produced at the edges of the grid. It's almost like what happened when computers went from mainframe and you just have computers in, in universities. And then now we have them everywhere in the shape of laptops and, and mobile phones. And I think we'll see some something resembling that happening to energy now.
4: That'll they'll just be commonplace. Well, you could say there that the future is looking bright for solar panels. Thank you to Andreas Thorsheim. We were just discussing the push for panels in Europe to help deal with our energy fears.
2: Yes, and one question that naturally arises from what we've discussed so far is, absolutely it makes sense that we're pushing for solar panels here in the UK and in Europe, given that they can help us reduce reliance on fossil fuels. But what about countries which receive vastly more sunlight than we do? If solar can make economic sense here in the UK, and PV panels generate more electricity when there are no clouds in the sky, what about climates which have pretty much year-round sun? maybe they can hold the key to this crisis?
4: I thought you never ask, James. I'd like us to take a look now at a case study of one such country which positions itself to benefit from the global shift towards renewable energy. A country which has historically been viewed as pretty resource barren is now trying to harness the potential of the huge amount of sunlight it receives. That country is Morocco, who have a substantial chunk of the Sahara Desert within their borders. As it turns out, the road to being a climate leader is not without its challenges. You probably didn't need telling that the Sahara Desert gets its fair share of sun. What it might surprise you to know is that if we covered the Sahara in solar panels, we could produce enough electricity to power Europe 7,000 times over, with next to no carbon emissions. So what are we waiting for? Energy crisis solved.
13: There are several technical and political reasons why this has not happened so far.
4: That is Karim El Gendi, urban sustainability and climate consultant specialising in the Middle East and North Africa, known as the MENA region.
13: Uh, The first issue is the intermittency of solar energy or the fact that electricity is only generated during the day. This requires a significant amount of storage capacity. The cost of this storage, or specifically batteries, used to be quite high, but it is consistently coming down on a per kilowatt hour basis. The other challenge, the other technical challenge, is the distance between where energy is generated in North Africa and where it is consumed in Europe. And that distance is quite long, which could lead to energy losses in transmission. Dust is also a major issue, and high temperatures lead to reduced performance in solar panels. Yes, the panels do receive a lot of energy, but high temperatures around them, and especially on the surface of the solar panel, uh, means that the performance is, is suboptimal.
4: This last factor has led Morocco to invest in solar projects different from the PV panels we've been discussing in the show so far. Another way of generating electricity from the sun is is through concentrating the sun's rays into a focal point and using the enormous heat this can generate.
13: Concentrated solar power tends to be more expensive than photovoltaic, but it's also more economic in terms of energy storage because batteries were still quite expensive.
4: The largest concentrated solar projects in Morocco are NOR1, 2 and 3. No. 1 and 2 are trough-based systems with 500,000 parabolic mirrors arranged in rows at angles so they will direct sunlight towards a tube. In these tubes is a synthetic oil which is heated up to 400 degrees. This is then used to boil water in a heat exchanger to drive a steam turbine which produces the electricity. One drawback of the project is when the sun stops shining... The plant does have to use fossil fuels to keep that oil hot enough not to freeze overnight.
13: It provides enough storage hours for the energy generated during the day to be used later in the evening and as close to 24 hours of generation as possible.
4: Instead of parabolic mirrors in rows, Northree uses a system where thousands of flat mirrors are placed in concentric circles. Around a central 250 meter tall tower, which directly heats molten salt. This acts as the working fluid instead of the oil in NOR 1 and 2. It's seriously visually impressive. It looks a bit like a space shuttle ready for launch, surrounded by rows and rows of shining sheets of glass. For this reason, it has become the poster boy for Morocco's quest to become a big player in clean energy.
13: Particularly Clean water, fresh water, is required in the case of concentrated solar power because these mirrors need to be incredibly clean in order to reflect all of the direct uh, normal irradiation that hits it. Remember, CSP works differently. It only works with direct radiation, not the ambient light in the skies. The water footprint that is required by this is certainly a problem in a country such as Morocco where water is becoming increasingly scarce. And also the desalination environmental footprint becomes an inhibitor and an additional cost on such projects. So there's a certain balance to be made here between the water footprint, which has, a, uh, in some cases, an energy and a carbon footprint, and the benefits are to be made out of renewable energy.
4: Another problem comes with trying to transport all that clean energy from Morocco to Europe.
13: Morocco exports excess electricity to Europe via cables which go through Spain. But there are new plans by a UK company called x to export electricity directly from Morocco to the UK, to Devon directly, via sea cables. The project is quite unique, actually. It aims to develop more than 10 gigawatt hours of new solar and wind farms uh, on an area that is the size of a city, big as Edinburgh, to use 20 gigawatt hours of battery storage in order to condense these 10 gigawatts into 3.6 gigawatts of constant power. So basically, using batteries to deal with the intermittency as the cost of batteries has come down, this is now viable to do without government subsidies. The transmission losses will also be minimized by using direct current rather than alternating current in the section between Morocco and the UK, so the subsea section. And according to the proponents of the project, it could provide 8% of the UK energy needs, electricity needs rather. Uh, that suggests that batteries have now come down in cost enough to make up for the intermittency issues and to provide constant power that can be used for baseload. There it's competing with fossil fuels and also competing with nuclear.
4: These amazing feats of engineering are a marvel to even think about. But Karim has doubts as to whether Morocco alone holds the key to getting us out of the world's current energy predicament.
13: Morocco does have very ambitious plans to increase its renewable energy capacity so that they represent 52% more than half of its total electricity generation capacity by the end of this decade, so 2030. It needs about 10 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030. So 10 gigawatts, remember that, is quite a small uh, amount of electricity generation that is required for Morocco, because Morocco's energy needs are quite limited. To compare that to 580 gigawatt hours, which is what Europe and the UK need currently. This is the amount of electricity that is sourced from non-renewable sources. So yes, 10 gigawatts would be nice. Yes, that would help, but it will certainly not fix Europe's problems.
4: Karim Al Gandhi.
2: Interesting to learn the damage the heat can do to the efficiency of PV panels. Bit of a stumbling block for solar that really.
4: Yeah, there's also some controversy in Morocco that these government-backed solar mega-projects NOR 1, 2 and 3, designed with the European market in mind, have meant that regional needs have been somewhat disregarded.
2: And that's a shame because one of the big benefits of solar energy is that it can provide for a very diverse set of energy needs, as we're going to hear from our final guest on this week's show. Richard Randall Boggis from the University of Sheffield is working with collaborators in Kenya and Tanzania on agrovoltaics, Technologies which aren't just providing solar energy to remote communities, but may also help to resolve the land use issue, which we've been thinking about in the show so far as well. Richard, can you tell us a bit about what agrovoltaics are?
14: Agrovoltaics is actually a pretty simple concept. It's combining agriculture with photovoltaics. So when you visited the Bayvar Solar Park, you mentioned the food versus fuel land use conflicts that we're seeing with developing solar parks. And so what we do with agrivoltaics is raise the panels up so that you can have agricultural activities underneath and you space the panels apart to let enough sunlight through to the underlying crops. And what that means is that you're getting renewable energy without losing the cropland.
2: It must be quite tricky to balance between making sure the solar panels are receiving enough sunlight to produce a good amount of electricity and also that the crops are receiving enough light to produce enough food for themselves. How do you manage that?
14: Yeah, so it's really important that the agrivoltaic systems are designed depending on the local context. So in Northern Europe, for example, it is a bit more of a a conflict for the light from the solar panels and for the crops. But in other places, for example, where I'm working in East Africa and in tropical regions where there's plenty of sunlight, it's actually a benefit to partially shade the crops underneath. Whereas if you are in northern uh, locations, then you, you need to space the panels apart a bit more. There's also tilting panel technologies, which can tilt the panels away from the sun to let more sunlight through to the crops. But of course, that comes at a bit of a cost to the electricity production.
2: And if we think first just about those projects you're working on in Africa, what results are you seeing from installing agrovoltaics in these remote, arid communities?
14: Well, it's actually really exciting because what we're seeing by partially shading the crops is that we're reducing water loss from evapotranspiration, we're reducing temperature stresses and UV stresses, and so we're actually increasing the yields of some of the crops that we've grown. We're in the early stages of our studies at the moment, so we need more time to uh, study more crops over a longer period of time. But from one harvest season that we've had so far with cabbages, the cabbages were actually 21% larger than in the open field control system. So not only are we getting the low carbon and local and also off-grid electricity, but also increasing the the crop yields as well. And something else I wanted to mention was that you also mentioned about the issue with the temperature affecting the electricity generation. Hmm. And one of my collaborators uh, in the University of Arizona has seen that by raising the panels up and having the crops underneath, The solar panels are actually slightly cooler than conventional ground-mounted panels as well, increasing their electricity generation. So actually, it's benefiting both the food yields and also the electricity production.
2: And these communities in Africa, where there's a lot of off-grid electricity needs, is really providing a benefit?
14: Yeah, absolutely. So more than half of the population of East Africa, that's more than 200 million people don't have access to electricity. They're not connected to national grids. And those that are connected to national grids also have issues with, with blackouts, with the grid being unreliable. And one of the wonderful things about solar technology is that you can provide it at a range of different scales in many places around the world, which means that you don't need to be uh, focusing on expanding national grids. You can actually work on off-grid and mini-grid systems. And this can apply both for agrivoltaics and also other forms of solar, like rooftop solar and other mini-grid systems.
2: This sounds kind of like the opposite of what we were talking to Karim about earlier with these massive solar projects in Morocco designed for Europe's needs. You're working with people internationally still, but this feels like it has a very local focus. I wonder what you think the possibilities of scaling agro we touched on it a bit before, but using this same method on the vast swathes of land in this country currently being used for solar and a bit of grazing as in the case of Vine Farm.
14: So, firstly, it can be incorporated with grazing as well. But with the agrivoltaics we look at, it aims to take it to another step so we're not losing those fields of cropland. When you get on the train around the UK and you see those huge fields of solar parks, which are providing much needed low carbon electricity, we're now seeing that we can also produce food underneath those solar panels as well. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done. The systems have been tested in France, Italy, the Netherlands, and, and Germany. We haven't tested them yet in the UK, so we need to figure out how to design the systems, how spaced apart the panels need to be, and importantly, what will the local communities think about the systems as well? That's a crucial factor when developing an agrivoltaic system.
2: Richard, thank you very much. That was Richard Randall Boggess from the University of Sheffield. He was talking to us about agrovoltaics, the innovation trying to provide people in arid climates with electricity and food from the same plot of land, which circles us back nicely to think about those sheep grazing amongst the solar panels in Vine Farm.
4: Yes, exactly, it does. Thank you so much for that wonderful summary on solar. And we finish today with our question of the week. This week, Otis Kingsman is springing to solve this question from listener Mark.
12: If a compressed spring is dissolved in acid, where does the potential energy go?
10: Where indeed? When a spring is compressed, energy is stored as potential energy, so that when the spring is released, it is converted into movement or kinetic energy, and the spring bounces back. But what would happen to that energy if the spring was destroyed while compressed? Physics scientist Dr Martin Buzzer from the University of Hull is here to help us make sense of it. Well,
1: when you compress a spring,
15: what's actually happening at an atomic level is that you are compressing the interatomic bonds that link the atoms making up um, the spring. So basically the potential energy of the spring is, if you like, is stored in the potential energy of the interatomic bonds. And what happens is that when you dissolve the spring uh, with acid, you're basically destroying that bond, and therefore the potential energy that's stored in the bonds is released or is converted into kinetic energy of the atoms and molecules. In other words, the uh, atoms and molecules move faster.
10: Kinetic energy is a primary way to release energy. So the breaking of the molecular bonds by the acid causes the energy to be released as heat.
15: And this loss of potential energy and kinetic energy of large objects into heat, in fact, happens in everyday life. You see it all the time. For example, if you drop a basketball uh, from a height and uh, it bounces, it never quite bounces back to uh, the original height. And the reason for that is that when the basketball uh, hits the, the ground... That collision is not perfectly elastic. So some of the kinetic energy is lost, uh, and it's lost as heat into the environment, so that when it bounces back, it doesn't quite reach the same height as when you um, dropped it.
10: Heat occurs whenever energy is released, and this could lead to a very drastic consequence.
15: All that potential energy is contributing to the heat death of the universe, essentially, And uh, technically, we we say that we are increasing the entropy of the universe or maybe the disorder of the universe.
10: We are constantly releasing energy through heat that we can't get back. And eventually, there'll be no energy left to be converted. Fortunately, that shouldn't happen for at least another few years.
15: So basically, uh, the potential energy of spring uh, is converted into, when you dissolve it, it's converted into kinetic energy of atoms and molecules. So that's basically, it's lost as heat. That's what we call heat.
10: Thank you once again to Dr. Martin Buzzer for helping us find the solution. Next week, we'll be finding the aromatic answers to this question from listener Tim.
6: Why can't my partner smell certain strong odours when in the countryside? She can smell manure, but is immune to smelling certain potent flowers and herbs.
4: That was Otis Kingsman and if you at home have a question, submit it to our forum, nakedscientist.com forum or send it to our website, nakedscientist.com or email us at chris at the nakedscientist.com And we must leave it there for this week, but do join us next week where we will be tackling tidal in the battle of alternative energy sources. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.